0: This is the New England Journal of Medicine, COVID-19 update for August 12th, 2020. I'm Steven Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal. And I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief and Lindsey Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, over the past few weeks, we've discussed the progress being made with vaccines against SARS-CoV-2. But for the moment, there aren't any vaccines and there probably won't be for a while. So what about the public health measures that are being taken against the disease?
1: Steve, you raise an excellent point. I think we're very optimistic about vaccines, but we have to be clear. The vaccine studies thus far have shown that the candidates that are being tested can elicit the types of immune responses that we hope that they can elicit, but that doesn't mean they're going to work because we don't know what an effective immune response looks like. And aside from animal studies, which are not perfect models of human disease, We don't know how effective any of these vaccines will be. And so, while we certainly hope that vaccines will work and prevent disease, it's certainly possible that they'll only be partially effective or perhaps not effective at all. And since we don't know how rapidly they can be deployed and how many people will agree to be vaccinated, we might be looking at a very long period where a good chunk of the population remains susceptible to disease.
0: Given all of that, what do we know about the effectiveness of public health measures? We've published several such experiences in the journal, and this week we published one about New Zealand. What's the story there?
1: So, New Zealand is a unique place with certain unique advantages. There are certainly, however, lessons that we can draw from what's happening in New Zealand that we can think about applying elsewhere. Of course, the overriding important geographic fact that works in New Zealand's favor is that it's an island nation, and it's pretty far away from, well, anything. That means Almost all new infections have to arrive at a limited number of airports. So this provides New Zealand with a level of control that most countries simply don't have. All travelers now must go to a government-managed isolation or quarantine facility for at least 14 days. This isn't just going to a hotel. It means that all travelers, including and primarily returning New Zealanders, have to go to these facilities that are secured. You know, they're real. They're surrounded by fences, so they're not places that are easy to go in and out of. And until recently, the government paid the full cost so that anyone returning to the country could appropriately quarantine or isolate without facing financial penalties and therefore decreasing the incentives to circumvent the system. New Zealand is a popular tourist destination, particularly during the summer. So there were opportunities for the introduction of COVID-19. And in fact, the first case occurred very early. It was on February 26th. At that point, the government looked at their ability to control access to the country, and decided that they would go all out. Instead of trying to just limit spread, they would commit themselves to completely eliminating transmission. To do that, they implemented the kinds of things that work elsewhere: simple interventions. They went into a strict lockdown. They had masking mandates. Their lockdown actually lasted quite a long time, and That meant seven weeks of basically stay at home orders. But gradually over time, they were able to lift these sanctions. And by early May, New Zealand had its last case of community transmission. Up until two days ago, that was the last case. And that transmission free period lasted until a couple days ago, which was 103 days. And that allowed New Zealand to open back up. And opening up meant complete opening. It's really amazing. Their businesses are open, restaurants and bars are full, there are weddings, there are other celebrations, and there are no restrictions. Um, for those of you who are rugby fans, you may have seen on television, full stadiums, full of people, no one wearing masks. And they were able to get away with that because they would limited community transmission. Now, of course, it's not perfect because people still are coming into the country. And that was exemplified just a couple days ago when there was introduction of new disease and a small cluster of cases found in Auckland. And so this is a continuing process. The government is instituting lockdowns again in the city and trying to figure out where those cases came from. So there's no such thing as a perfect success, but there's certainly a much more manageable problem in New Zealand than in most other places.
0: So most countries have instituted many of the same controls as New Zealand, but obviously with much more limited success. What can we learn from those other countries? Well,
1: every country, and of course in the U.S., every U.S. state has its own unique challenges, and they've all dealt with them in varying ways. There are a couple of examples that are somewhat similar to New Zealand. Other island nations like Iceland and Australia, although one could argue that it's actually a continent nation, yet it still has the advantage of being relatively far away from anywhere else and having limited access. Iceland took advantage of the fact that it has this incredibly advanced genetic capacity, and they use that to institute very widespread testing. They also were very successful in bringing the case rate down dramatically, and their economy was widely open. They only had a handful of cases for a couple of months through May and June. More recently, that's risen, but it's important to note it's a small country, but there have only been 10 deaths attributed to COVID-19 in all of Iceland. Australia is a much larger country, and it had a much larger outbreak, but it also has had a good deal of success with very limited spread. Now, currently, there is a substantial outbreak occurring around Melbourne. But outside of the state of Victoria, most of Australia has very limited disease. And again, it's much simpler to manage hot spots than it is to deal with a problem that's all over the place, as it is currently in the US. Several other countries have taken very intensive control measures. The ultimate example is probably China. China used measures that went beyond what most other countries have done to require isolation and quarantine. And that worked. It broke the transmission chain in the original outbreak. They continue to have new introductions, and they will continue to have to deal with those. South Korea and Singapore had early successes as well. They have also seen resurgences of disease, but they're in a much better position to control disease now than they would have been if they hadn't taken those early measures.
2: I mean, Eric and Steve, I think what we're seeing, you know, and it's it's Groundhog Day in the sense that a lot of the issues around control of spread of COVID speaks to basic public health principles and basic principles we've been talking about for months. This is a respiratory virus and spreads like a respiratory virus. And what we are seeing in different countries and in different public health systems are responses to the respiratory virus and its introduction. And there are a variety of tools that can help control its spread. You know, from the face mask to respiratory hand hygiene to spatial distancing to being outdoors versus indoors. And a key element is testing, case identification, and preventing forward transmission. And that's easier to do with a new introduction and aggressive control measures than when you have diffuse, almost endemic transmission. And that's a different issue in island nations than in nations that are approximating many other nations. Although in China, they were able to stop transmission after tens of thousands of cases. So with aggressive, routine public health measures and testing, one can have a big influence on transmission and get society back to where we want it to be, Eric, as you suggest, with open air, unmasked rugby games which is something we would all love to see here in the U.S. and elsewhere, but can't really happen till we are ahead of transmission. And it doesn't sound that innovative, the kinds of tools and interventions we're talking about, but public health works when applied systematically to the nature of the problem.
1: Lindsay, I love the Groundhog Day image, because we still don't know if the groundhog is going to see its shadow. And we will continue to have the winter of COVID-19 for longer. But I think where the analogy falls down is it's completely in our hands. These are things that are controllable. This is not just luck. I
2: couldn't agree with you more. It is allowing the science and public health to do their job. And we as different cities, states, countries globally... That's within our grasp if we use the science and apply it in a proportionate manner to how this respiratory viral infection is behaving in our jurisdiction. I think the issue of a vaccine, we have to really set expectations properly in that we don't know if a vaccine works. Those studies are ongoing, I'm uh, leading one of them. And once we determine if it works, then we have to figure out what that means. You know, Does it work like a measles vaccine or a hepatitis A vaccine, which works pretty well for a respiratory virus, although uh, Hep A is more enteric. Does it work like an influenza vaccine, which has modest efficacy, or even a mumps vaccine where we've seen that it works, but after two or three decades, it starts to fail, so the durability is not necessarily what we wanted and whether that's due to lack of silent subclinical boosting or other aspects of vaccine performance. So I think we need to be careful not to say one intervention above all others will get us out of this problem. I think we have to have a coordinated public health intervention. And then as tools emerge, we apply them to their fullest potential based on the science.
1: Yeah. And I'd add that we have perfectly good vaccines for a number of diseases. Yet we haven't eliminated them. Measles, mumps, um, it took us a very long time to eliminate smallpox. Polio is still a problem. So having a vaccine all by itself is not enough, even an excellent one.
0: So what are the lessons for the United States in the experience of these other countries with public health measures, with the tools that Lindsay's talking about? We've moved well beyond those early days when other countries intervened and had some success. The situation in the United States is very different today. What still can we learn from what they have done?
1: Well, as Lindsay said, it's much simpler to start early and control disease when the number of cases is low. But I think the lesson is that these measures work. And it's a matter of political will, really, and salesmanship to get them implemented. I think it's very reasonable, even at this time, when there are a high number of cases, to bring that case count down to the level where we can live much more normal lives and have a much more normal economy. But we have to use those measures. Now, I will say, in most parts of the U.S., the case numbers are declining at this point. New infections are declining, uh, largely because these measures are, to greater or lesser extents, being used. But there's a Cost to these measures, it means that there are some things that people shouldn't be doing. Number one, and number two, they don't work right away. They take a while after implementation to have a big impact on disease. Uh, nevertheless, they work, and we can choose to use them or choose not to use them and continue to have an illness which is killing people and devastating our economy at the same time.
2: I think that we also have to realize it's not a light switch, it's not yes, no. We have an answer today for all problems. It's a dynamic process. I think New Zealand, as you discussed earlier, Eric, is a terrific example. They put in control measures to stop transmission. And they were quite successful for several months. I'm not sure that there's only one port, the airport. There are probably seaports and other ports where it could be imported. But what we will learn over the next days to weeks is how New Zealand responds to the current event and how they bring the tools to bear to stop forward transmission in their island nation. And I think we can learn from that. I think in the U.S. it's much more complicated because we have a tapestry of public health responses and a complex social dynamic of how people respond to these tools to prevent transmission. And... The difficulty with COVID, which is, you know, very different than smallpox, although there are viruses that are transmissible, is that if you develop smallpox within days, you knew if you had it. Most people don't know that they have COVID. And the consequences of today's public health decisions are not really seen for two to three transmission cycles, which is a month or two. So that If we make a public health intervention today, we may not see the benefit for a month or two. If we fail to make a public health intervention today, we may not see the consequences of that in a month or two. Eric, I think the point that you raise about the societal cost is not trivial. The failure of the economy for many in our society, creates other health hardships. And we have to figure out how to apply the public health principles while allowing us to reopen strategically. And they're not at odds. They actually work synergistically together. But I think, Steve, what we need to learn from these other countries and these other experiences are how applying these tools work, and then how do we apply them to our different communities in the most thoughtful process.
0: There's been concern since the beginning of the pandemic that autumn might see a resurgence of disease. Is that still a worry? What can we say about predicting what's going to happen?
1: Well, the good news is that at least in the United States, it may be less important because the bad news is we already have a large outbreak. We don't need any environmental factors to accelerate it. If you look globally, the effect of seasonality at this point doesn't seem to be very strong as there have been large outbreaks in all seasons if you look at the Northern versus the Southern Hemisphere. So I don't think there's likely to be particularly magic to the fall in the US as there is with influenza, for example. But there are changes in behavior with the fall, especially in colder areas. Right now, people are able to do a lot of things outside and they're able to socialize outside. When the weather gets cooler and people are driven indoors, there'll be many more opportunities for transmission. So that could accelerate the spread. In addition, in some areas of the country where some colleges are opening, there'll be a lot more movement of people and the possibility of movement from highly endemic areas to areas with low endemicity. And perhaps with new reintroductions of disease, there'll be more disease. But I want to emphasize, I don't think it's anything magic about the atmosphere beyond the temperature and driving people indoors, I suspect.
2: No, I mean, I think, Eric, that as we increase social crowding because of the cold weather, that has the potential to increase transmission, especially if we're not wearing masks or performing proper respiratory etiquette. I also think it's going to get very confusing when other respiratory viruses like flu and RSV flare, and now when I have cold symptoms, what is it, and how do we deal with the consequences of that because, at least at my work, every day I have to attest that I have no cold symptoms or I can't come to work, and where do diagnostics fit in? so that we know what illnesses people have and how do we enable social distancing when people have symptoms, when there are a lot more symptoms to be had because the respiratory viruses are circulating. I think the flu vaccine and respiratory diagnostics will be important adjuncts to how we handle the fall and the co-occurrence of these illnesses.
1: Now, one of the unusual aspects of the social distancing, et cetera, that's going on, of course, is that in the spring when COVID-19 arrived, it pretty much knocked out flu because it appears, uh, and I'm going to go out on a limb here, that flu may be a little less transmissible than COVID-19 is. Certainly the measures that were instituted, the lockdown, et cetera, really coincided with a dramatic drop in flu, So it's conceivable that flu and other respiratory diseases may actually decrease in the fall as long as people are continuing to take measures to try to prevent the transmission of COVID-19. But your point is very well taken. You can't distinguish COVID-19 symptoms from any of these other respiratory viruses, and it's going to make it much more difficult to manage if we do see large outbreaks of other respiratory illnesses.
2: No, I do... Hope you're correct, Eric, that SARS-CoV-2 can outcompete flu or create social phenomenon that decrease flu transmissibility. I was always struck a decade ago when pandemic H1N1 emerged and knocked out seasonal H1N1 uh, from human transmission. So there are aspects of these viral infections that interact that we don't fully understand, although your suggestion was more of a social behavioral And I hope it's true. I'm worried that flu is so episodic and has different seasonal severity that it's very hard to predict how severe our season will be. But any respiratory viral infection that's being transmitted, whether it's SARS-CoV-2 or any of the others that we're used to is going to complicate the fall particularly if we are unable to make rapid diagnosis so that we can properly institute clinical and public health responses.
0: So getting back to vaccines as preventive measures, Russia just this week announced the registration of a vaccine that now seems accessible at least to certain parts of society. Why is this vaccine so far ahead of all the other candidates?
1: Well, it appears that Russia instituted a tremendous innovation, which was to register the vaccine without testing it. So It's not hard to introduce a vaccine if you don't go through the rigorous process that vaccines are undergoing in most countries. As far as I can tell, there are no published, peer-reviewed clinical studies of this vaccine. All we really know is what's on the registration statement on clinicaltrials.gov. This is an adenoviral vaccine. It uses an adenovirus serotype 26, which is similar to one of the ones that's being developed in the US. At least the carrier is similar. We don't really know very much beyond that, and the two trials that were registered were very small, a few dozen patients in each one. These were described as phase one, phase two studies, but they're tiny. They're much smaller even than the early phase studies being done for most of the other vaccines that have been described, and we don't know what the outcome was. Based on that information, the information they collected from that, the Russian authorities decided to register the vaccine, at least, which is providing accessibility to it after there are enough doses being produced. Okay, first, this sounds kind of crazy. I mean, we really worry about vaccine safety when it's being given to people who are healthy. Now, I will say, though, that you can imagine public health situations where the risk-benefit calculations are different. For example, if we had a large Ebola outbreak in the U.S. and there were Ebola vaccines being developed and people were dying by the tens of thousands, we may well implement a vaccine or provide it for wide use early on before we knew about the safety in hundreds of thousands of people or at least tens of thousands of people to combat an even worse outcome, which is we don't worry so much about safety if the risk to specific individuals is very, very high of a lethal illness. I don't think we're there yet. So I think that this isn't the calculation that anyone else is making beyond the Russian government. And there are, of course, other considerations in their registration of this vaccine. But I think we do want to consider, and this is going to be a consideration here in Europe and everywhere else in the world, So how much risk are we willing to take?
2: Eric, I agree that there can be ethical conundrums based upon unique facts of severity of illness and the promise of a candidate countermeasure. And those need to be thought about carefully. However, we have the facts of the current circumstance. And the current circumstance, and I think with the Russian vaccine, there are dozens of candidate vaccines that show promise. That vaccine is one of them until we have rigorous data in the public domain that we can all scrutinize, it is very difficult to assess how impactful this vaccine may be. And many of us believe, i one of them, that without rigorous testing, there's no way to know the efficacy. And it is very hard from preclinical data to predict efficacy. And unfortunately, there are too many examples of things we didn't think work that do work and things that we know should work that don't. And so until the rigorous testing is done, it is more hope than science, fact, or reality. And it has the potential, Eric, as you suggest, to be very damaging because there are many in society who are skeptical of vaccines. And when we put forward vaccines that don't have safety or efficacy data, it can further undermine the trust in that public health intervention that is so important. It reminds me a bit of hydroxychloroquine. And so it is a problem that has gone on in different arenas where without data establishing safety and efficacy for this circumstance, for this illness, we take a very grave risk of being misleading to the community. And I hope that there are significant data establishing this strategy, and I hope that it's in the public domain soon so we can all look at it and have the opportunity to make an informed response to your question, Steve, as to whether or not this vaccine really has the promise that is being touted.
1: Yeah, I entirely agree with that. And I didn't mean to be defending the Russian vaccine. If you look at the risk-benefit analysis here, it's clear this is a foolish and perhaps dangerous, very dangerous move to allow people to use something without evidence that it's safe or that it works, either one. And I'd go even further than what you're saying, which is this vaccine can be implemented in Russia, but it's, unless it's extraordinarily effective, it's going to be very difficult to tell whether or not it works from the sort of post-marketing studies that they're proposing, the sort of phase four studies. Those are not very good ways of measuring efficacy, particularly for vaccines.
2: And this is an age-old debate. Smith. Sinclair Lewis wrote about this exact conundrum nearly 100 years ago. This is not a new conundrum that we as a community have faced. I just hope we're smarter at how we answer the questions because I agree, Eric. Uh, uncontrolled post marketing case collection is next to impossible to determine any meaningful safety or efficacy.
0: Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.